This is June 28th, 2020, and uh, this morning I'd like to set aside all of the stuff in the news, uh, the uh, kind of braided calamity of pandemic, uh, economic fallout, uh, and uh, climate change, set that aside and go back to a book that I once read from Intesho, I think it was 18 years ago, uh, called Peace Pilgrim. And it's, uh, it's a book uh, about a remarkable, remarkable woman uh, who was inspired to walk for peace, uh, to uh, not just talk the talk, but walk the walk, and uh, who spent 28 years walking alone, crisscrossing the United States. I think uh, it said seven times she walked across the country. I, um, I, I find uh, support from an approach in this tumultuous time we live in, approach of uh, less news, more history. And usually that means uh, going looking back and seeing how uh, in previous ages people have encountered terrible challenges, suffering, calamities of their own, and somehow found their way through it. It's, it's encouraging, and it prevents us from getting completely wrapped up in things that are unfolding uh, today. Uh, this is a lot more recent history. Uh, her, her pilgrimage, uh, her 28-year pilgrimage was from uh, 1953 to 1981, um, when she was uh, killed on the road by a drunk driver. <clears throat> uh, so, uh, where to start here? Uh, her message was simple. Uh, and I'm reading from a book called Peace Pilgrim, Her Life and Work in Her Own Words. Uh, and let me just add that uh, she didn't ever want to give anyone her name. She thought that that just um, took people off track. So even reporters, noisy report, nosy reporters who want to try to wheedle it out of her couldn't do so, they say. Uh, so you know, there were there were articles written about her later after her death, but I'm going to honor her um, preference that uh, her name not get mixed up in this and and keep her anonymous. So this book was uh, compiled by people who uh, loved her. Uh, she met many, many, many thousands of people in those 28 years on the road. And these people got together after she was killed and um, collected her. She, she, she had been uh, often, as the years went by, she, when she became more famous, she would be invited to give talks at schools and other places, churches. And um, this book represents... Uh, her own these this, these are her own words. Uh, it says in the introduction, we have attempted in this book to present Peace Pilgrim's extraordinary life and teachings in their purest form. Her own words. They were assembled from her little booklet, Steps Toward Inner Peace. 
her 19 Peace Pilgrim's Progress newsletters, private conversations, excerpts from her correspondence, and talks taped by many individuals over the years. Known from coast to coast simply as Peace Pilgrim, it was her wish to stress the message and not the messenger. She never told details of her life that she considered unimportant, such as her original name, age, and birthplace. She said, I never want people to remember me except in connection with peace. We are told here, though, that she was born on a small farm in the, in the East Coast uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, she grew from modest roots and, like many people, gradually acquired money and things. When she realized this self-centered life had become meaningless, and worldly goods, burdens to her rather than blessings, she walked all one night through the woods until she felt, and these are her words, a complete willingness without any reservations to give my life to God and to service. Now we'll hear more about that uh, awakening, and I, I believe that's what it was, truly an awakening she had spontaneously. But first, a little more about her. After that awakening, she gradually and methodically adopted a life of voluntary simplicity. It's a wonderful phrase, voluntary simplicity. And for those who have lived that way, they swear that this is um, a big part of happiness, just living within your, within your, not just your means, but your needs. And after this awakening, she began this, and as far as I can reckon, it was about 1938 that she had this reckoning, this uh, awakening in the woods. And that led to a 15 year period of preparation, as she called it, not knowing just what it was she was preparing for. She did volunteer work for peace groups and also worked with people who had physical, emotional, and mental problems. During this preparation period, and in the midst of many spiritual hills and valleys, she found inner peace and her calling. Her pilgrimage for peace began on the morning of January 1st, 1953, she vowed to remain a wanderer until mankind has learned the way of peace. She walked alone and penniless and with no organizational backing. She walked as a prayer, in her, those are her words, and as a chance to inspire others to pray and work for peace. She wore navy blue shirt and slacks and a short tunic with pockets all around the bottom in which she carried her only worldly possessions, a comb, a folding toothbrush, a ballpoint pen, copies of her message, and her current correspondence. She would receive she would have correspondence sent to her, the nearest uh, post office, uh, sent to her by her sister uh, in the East. After walking 25,000 miles, which took until 1964, she stopped counting miles and speaking became her first priority, although she continued to walk daily. Her increasing speaking schedule made it necessary for her to begin to accept rides often. And about her speaking, uh, she writes later in the book, while passing through San Diego that first year, 
I was introduced into public speaking. A high school teacher approached me on the street and inquired if I would speak to her class. I told her in all fairness that as peace pilgrim, I had never spoken to a group before. She assured me that it would be fine and asked only that I would answer the students' questions. I agreed. If you have something worthwhile to say, you can say it. Otherwise, why in the world would you want to be speaking? (laughs) She continues, I have no problem speaking before a group. When you have surrendered completely to God's will, the way seems easy and joyous. It is only before you have completely surrendered that the way seems difficult. When I speak, energy flows through me like electricity flows through a wire. They say that uh, surveys uh, show that uh, the number number one fear uh, that people report is fear of speaking before others speaking publicly. Their number two fear is death. But you know, really they're the same. Why, why, why are we afraid to speak before others? Uh, because of, of fear of dying, of, of being humiliated, of, of uh, suffering loss of self, losing face. So it's not surprising after this awakening that she had no concerns about speaking in front of others. When, you, when you've seen others as yourself, and they're no longer others. Still in the introduction here, Peace Pilgrim believed we had entered a crisis period in human history, walking the brink between a nuclear war of annihilation and a golden age of peace. She felt it was her calling to arouse people from apathy and get them thinking and actively working for peace. And always she encouraged people to seek the real source of peace within and to use the ways of peace in their relations with others. She made uh, what she liked to call the glorious transition to a freer life uh, in July 1981 in Indiana. She died instantly in a head-on collision as she was being driven to a speaking engagement. In her last newspaper interview, she spoke of being in radiant health. In her, in her, in that interview, the interviewer had said, you seem to be a most happy woman. She replied, I certainly am a happy person. How could one know God and not be joyous? So, Uh, She does use the word God, uh, fair enough. Uh, We use the word true nature, essential mind, original nature, Buddha nature. To my ear, it's different. God, I can't see the word God or hear the word God uh, in the same way as I hear use our true nature because God's so we're so conditioned to seeing God as an entity and true nature is no such thing we just said it in the Hakuin chant our true self is no self our own self is no self but she she, uh, given her background, her education, her conditioning, uh, she did use God, and and we can work with that. We can just uh, take it for what it is. 
Chapter 1, she said, I received no formal religious training as a child. There you go. She didn't have, she didn't have a lot of uh, baggage to unload before her awakening. When I was a senior in high school, I began to make my search for God, but all my efforts were in an outward direction. I went about inquiring, what is God? What is God? See, this is, this is the most promising sign um, of, of the lead up to an awake, what we would call awakening is the questioning, wondering, I went about acquiring, what is God, what is God? Uh, I was most inquisitive and I asked many questions of many people, but I never received any answers. However, I was not about to give up. Intellectually, I could not find God on the outside, so I tried another approach. I took a long walk with my dog and pondered deeply upon the question. Then I went to bed and slept over it. And in the morning, I had my answer from the inside through a still, small voice. And here's her own words about God. Now, my high school answer was a very simple answer, that we human beings just lump together everything in the universe which is beyond the capacity of all of us. And to all those things, together, some of us give the name God. Well, that set me on a search. And the first thing I did was to look at a tree and I said, there's one. All of us working together couldn't create that one tree. And even if it looked like a tree, it wouldn't grow. There is a creative force behind us. Or we could say intelligence with a capital I. And then I looked at my beloved stars at night and there's another. There's a sustaining power that keeps planets in their orbit. Power, okay, fair enough. Don't need to make it a person, a fixed person, an immortal. Here, still talking before her awakening. Yeah, this is all her own words that, was, that were compiled. I also made two very important discoveries as time went on. In the first place, I discovered that making money was easy. I had been led to believe that money and possessions would ensure me a life of happiness and peace of mind. So that was the path I pursued. In the second place, I discovered that making money and spending it foolishly was completely meaningless. I knew that this was not what I was here for, but at that time I didn't know exactly what I was here for. It was really the realization that money and things would not make me happy that got me started on my preparation for the pilgrimage. You may wonder how in the world I got involved with money and things in the first place, but you see, we are taught these sets of opposites which are extremely confusing. Aren't we, then? Dualisms. She continues, as I looked about the world, so much of it impoverished, I became increasingly uncomfortable about having so much while my brothers and sisters were starving. Finally, I had to find another way. The turning point came when, in desperation and out of a very deep seeking for a meaningful way of life, I walked all one night through the woods. I came to a moonlit glade and prayed. 
I felt a complete willingness, without any reservations, to give my life, to dedicate my life, to service. Please use me, I prayed to God, and a great peace came over me. This is also a turning point in Zen practice when you can shift from wanting to get something out of practice to wanting to, let's say, realize your true self in order to serve others. This is a turning point when serving and giving that, that wish takes over us. It's a fundamental change. Many of us begin Zen practice with this kind of craving to, if, to get, if not get enlightenment, uh, at least to get something for myself me, my peace of mind. You see this, this very unusual difference here with the peace pilgrim where her front and center of her mind was, how can I be used? How can I serve? She said, I tell you, it's a point of no return. After that, you can never go back to completely self-centered living. And so I went into the second phase of my life. I began to live to give what I could instead of to get what I could. And I entered a new and wonderful world. My life began to be meaningful. I attained the great blessing of good health. I haven't had an ache or pain, a cold, or headache since. And then she says in parentheses, most illness, you know, is psychologically induced. I don't know about that, but yeah, some is. From that time on, I have known that my life work would be for peace, that it would cover the whole peace picture. Peace among nations, peace among groups, peace among individuals, and the very, very important inner peace. However, there's a great deal of difference between being willing to give your life and actually giving your life. And for me, 15 years of preparation and inner seeking lay between. And about this all-important preparation, uh, she writes more uh, later. Uh, but first, uh, she goes into a little more detail about the the uh, awakening. She, I don't think I never saw in this book. I haven't seen her refer to it as awakening. But I have no doubt that it was. The depth of it, how, who could say? It uh, was certainly more than um, a grazing experience of enlightenment. Looking for the 15 years after her awakening that she spent giving, devoting herself to others, serving. I can't find it. So here's the experience itself. 
There were hills and valleys, lots of hills and valleys in that spiritual growing up period. Then in the midst of the struggle, there came a wonderful mountaintop experience, the first glimpse of what the life of inner peace was like. That came when I was out walking in the early morning. Early morning, that's when the Buddha came to his supreme awakening. All of a sudden, I felt very uplifted, more uplifted than I had ever been. I remember I knew timelessness and spacelessness and lightness. I did not seem to be walking on the earth. There were no people or even animals around, but every flower, every bush, every tree seemed to wear a halo. There was a light emanation all around everything and flecks of gold fell like slanted rain through the air. The most important part of it was not the phenomena. That's good. That could be seen as Machio. The important part of it was the realization of the oneness of all creation. Not only all human beings. I knew before that all human beings are one. But now I knew also a oneness with the rest of creation. The creatures that walk the earth and the growing things of the earth the air, the water, the earth itself. And most wonderful of all, a oneness with that which permeates all and binds all together and gives life to all. A oneness with that which many would call God. I've never felt separate since. I could return again and again to this wonderful mountaintop and then I could stay there for longer and longer periods of time and just slip out occasionally. Now this is, this is what it makes this a truly remarkable experience. First of all, that it was spontaneously. This was, this was uh, without any religious background, without any meditation as we, as we think of it. This, for those of us who believe in causation, in karma, there's only one explanation for this, is that she spent lifetimes of spiritual work in the past. She devoted herself to others, to serving others for lifetimes. And so, yes, she had to go through this period where Money and possessions were important to her when she was young. But then, soon enough, soon enough than most people, she could see through it. And, and then once she had this awakening, uh, even though she was not doing any kind of formal meditation, she seems not to have slipped back. She seems not to have regressed. That's extraordinary. This is so rare, this experience of this woman, uh, that I would ask that no one count on such an experience coming spontaneously. This is the tremendous gift of the Dharma, is that a method, we have a method for making this happen, a method of, 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 of purification, Zazen, upholding the precepts, a method that if, if stuck to long enough uh, will bring results. If not awakening, then a much happier life, a life in which we're better um, employed to serve others, to help others. This is exceedingly rare to have this just burst upon oneself when, while walking in the woods one morning. Do not count on that happening.
she uh, she lays out um, what she calls preparations. The first preparation is to take a right attitude toward life. This means stop being an escapist, exclamation mark. Stop being a surface liver who stays right in the froth of the surface. There are millions of these people and they never find anything really worthwhile. Be willing to face life squarely and get down beneath the surface of life where the verities and realities are to be found. That's what we are doing here now. So, uh, right attitude. Uh, this you could compare uh, in Buddhism to the first of the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, right attitude, or right understanding. Sometimes it's translated as right thought. It's getting set on the right path. She continues, there's the whole matter of having a meaningful attitude toward the problems that life may set before you. If only you could see the whole picture, if you knew the whole story, you would realize that no problem ever comes to you that does not have a purpose in your life, that cannot contribute to your inner growth. When you perceive this, you will recognize that problems are opportunities in disguise. If you, do not, if you did not face problems, you would just drift through life. It is through solving problems in accordance with the highest light we have that inner growth is attained. Now, collective problems must be solved by us collectively, and no one finds inner peace who avoids doing his or her share in the solving of collective problems. Which, by the way, brings us to uh, this, this upwelling of, of uh, this, these cries for racial justice and re uh, reforming the criminal justice system. So let us always think about these problems together and talk about them together and collectively work toward their solutions. And then she goes on to the, her second preparation uh, has to do with bringing our lives into harmony with the laws that govern the universe we don't have time to go into each of these. Third, the her, what she calls her third preparation has to do with something which is unique for every human life because every one of us has a special place in the life pattern. And no two people have exactly the same part to play in God's plan. There is a guidance which comes from within to all who will listen. Through this guidance, each one will feel drawn to some part in the scheme of things. When you come into this world, your jobs in the divine plan are there. They just need to be realized and lived. If you do not yet know where you fit, I suggest that you try seeking it in receptive silence. I used to walk amid the beauties of nature, just receptive and silent, and wonderful insights would come to me. Well, there it is. Try seeking it in receptive silence. And we might add, with your knees on the mat, your seat on the cushion, back straight, shoulders relaxed. This method of Zen practice has been honed over many, many centuries, refined by some of the most deeply enlightened beings ever to walk the planet. We are so fortunate to have this way, this Tao, that can, so that we don't have to rely on having had many lifetimes of building up many lifetimes of good karma. Here's an interesting thing. 
She said, I was filled with a runaway enthusiasm to help others, and one could argue that when I solved so many problems for others, I was depriving them of the spiritual growth problem-solving brings. I soon realized that I had to leave some good works for others to do and be blessed by. Uh, here's where she uh, talks about the, that 15-year period of preparation before her awakening. No, uh, excuse me, after her awakening, but before she set off on, on the road. In the beginning, I helped people in simple ways with errands, gardening projects, and by reading to them. I spent some time in the private homes of the elderly and the recuperating ill, assisting them to overcome their various ailments. I worked with troubled teenagers, the psychologically disturbed, and the physically and mentally handicapped. My motives were pure, and much of my work did have a positive and good effect. I used what I call spiritual therapy. I found all the good things that those I worked with wanted to do, and I helped them to do those things. There were some who became too attached to me, and I had to work on breaking the attachment. Well, if I may confide, uh, that's part of what's behind my um, asking uh, Amala Sensei and in the past other Dharma heirs of mine to lead Sashins is uh, I just think it's 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 good uh, for uh, people to hear the Dharma in uh, different voices and you can even say that uh, this is one of those voices of the peace pilgrim. The, the, the fact is that even though different teachers, different voices are, can be all speaking the truth, uh, it just lands better for some people hearing it from certain others. Uh, moving on to the next preparation, the fourth preparation is the simplification of life. Uh, when people ask me, and it's not so un, un, infrequent, when they ask me what they might do to prepare for Sashin, um, what I now say is find find ways to simplify your daily life don't invite more complications in your life than you need to deal with keep it simple it doesn't mean giving up your possessions um, although that can can work uh, to whittle whittle away the things that are possessions that come to possess us. Here's she later in, in the book, she elaborates on this simplification. The simplification of life is one of the steps to inner peace. A persistent simplification will create an inner and outer well-being that places harmony in one's life. For me, this began with the discovery of the meaninglessness of possessions beyond my actual and immediate needs. As soon as I had brought myself down to need level, I began to feel a wonderful harmony in my life between inner and outer well-being, between spiritual and material well-being. This uh, reminds me of the early monks, the, uh, the followers of the Buddha uh, in India, ancient India, uh, the monks were prohibited from staying in any one place uh, over for more than one night. 
They really were wanderers, just like our peace pilgrim here. And they also uh, were given a very, very short list of things that they could carry with them. Uh, a bowl, uh, a water filter, small, you know, hand water filter, a needle and thread for repairing their robes. She says, some people seem to think that my life dedicated to simplicity and service is austere and joyless, but they do not know the freedom of simplicity. My life is full and good, but never overcrowded. If life is overcrowded, then you are doing more than is required for you to do. My life had been bogged down. I felt greedy before I took my vow of simplicity. I shall not accept more than I need while others in the world have less than they need. Remember, uh, um, we said earlier what she carried with her was just a comb, a folding toothbrush, a ballpoint pen, uh, some of her her words of advice to people, copies. Uh, for uh, those of you here uh, at the Zen Center, living the residents of the Zen Center, the few remaining residents of the Zen Center, I'll leave this book out uh, for you to look through just to see her. See her on the cover and in the back there are more photographs. Uh, picture is worth a thousand words. And then she talks about purifications. Then I discovered that there were some purifications required of me. The first one is such a simple thing. It is purification of the body. This had to do with my physical living habits. I used to eat all the standard foods. I shudder now to think of what I used to dump into this temple of the spirit. I did not take care of my bodily temple when I was very young. This only happened later in life. It was five years after I felt a complete willingness to give my life that I began to take care of my bodily temple. Five years! Now I eat mostly fruits, nuts, vegetables, whole grains, and perhaps a bit of milk and cheese. This is what I live on and walk on. Now here's one that some of you may want to close your ears, cover your ears, there was a time when I had the caffeine habit. I would get up in the morning and have my cup of coffee first thing. One morning when I had just taken my cup of coffee, I sat and looked at that coffee cup and said, you're depending on that to get you perking in the morning? I'm not gonna be a slave to caffeine. This is going to stop right here. And it did. I never touched it again. I missed it for a few days but I'm stronger than that cup of coffee. I began to realize that I was disobeying my rule of life, which says, I will not ask anyone to do for me things that I would refuse to do for myself. And she elaborates, now I wouldn't kill any creature. I wouldn't even kill a chicken or a fish. And therefore I stopped immediately eating all flesh. A little bit later on the page, she says, when I realized white flour and white sugar were bad for your health, I stopped eating them. When I realized highly seasoned things were bad, I quit them. And when I realized all processed foods contain substances that are bad for the body, I quit eating them. Even most water out of the tap is a chemical cocktail. I would suggest bottled or distilled water. 
And then she talks about the purification of thought. That's our specialty in Zazen. She has a section called Relinquishments, Relinquishment of Self-Will, Relinquishment of the Feeling of Separateness. Well, that's easier said than done. <laughs> and that's why we have Zazen. Relinquishment of, of All Attachments. That's easy, easier said than done. In Zen, we emphasize as the, the principal attachment that causes us to suffer is the attachment to our thoughts. And she talks more about her 28-year pilgrimage on the roads. In the Middle Ages, the pilgrims went out as the disciples were sent out, without money, without food, without adequate clothing. And I know that tradition. I have no money. I do not accept any money on my pilgrimage. I belong to no organization. I own only what I wear and carry. There's nothing to tie me down. I'm as free as a bird soaring in the sky. I walk until given shelter, fast until given food. I don't ask. It's given without asking. Aren't people good? There is a spark of good in everybody, no matter how deeply it may be buried. It is there. It's waiting to govern your life gloriously. She talks about how she was tested over these 28 years on the road, uh, opening herself to strangers. She says, she said, some things don't seem so difficult, like going without food. I seldom miss more than three to four meals in a row, and I never even think about food until it is offered. The most I have gone without food is three days, and then Mother Nature provided my food, apples that had fallen from a tree. I once fasted as a prayer discipline for 45 days, so I now I know how long one can go without food. My problem is not how to get enough to eat, it's how to graciously avoid getting too much. Everyone wants to overfeed me. Going without sleep, she says, was harder for her. She averaged 25 miles a day walking. Just a couple more details before we close. I sleep equally well in a soft bed or on the grass beside the road. Many times I'm given shelter by total strangers. When hospitality is not available, there are always bus depots, railroad stations, and all-night truck stops. Bridges always offer protection from the elements, as well as dilapidated barns and empty basements of abandoned homes. Culverts and large pipes often served as lodging. But one of my favorite places to sleep is a large haystack piled in an accessible field on a clear night. 
the stars are my blanket. Cemeteries are also wonderful places to sleep for the night. They are quiet, the grass is always neatly trimmed, and nobody ever bothers you there. No, there is no intrusion upon the departed spirits. I wish them peace. They understand. But a picnic table at a nearby road stop, a gathering of pine needles in a nearby brush, all the cushion of a blossoming or the cushion of a blossoming wheat field would serve as well. Well, our time is up. Uh, I really encourage anyone who gets inspiration from this to get this book. It's called Peace Pilgrim. Um, there's some kind of a foundation that grew up after she died that uh, sends these out uh, for, for free. Uh, but you can also buy them. All right, well, let's now stop and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate. Endless blind passions, I vow to uproot. Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate. The great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. All beings without number, I vow to liberate. Endless blind passions, I vow to uproot. Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate. The great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. All beings without number, I vow to liberate. Endless blind passions, I vow to uproot. Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate. The great way of Buddha, I vow to attain.